Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about New Year's resolutions. We join the debate on how long it takes to prepare microwavable Velveeta mac and cheese. We wonder how a simple word like, huh, can be found in so many languages. We play another, I must say, unfair game of Stump the Older Old Dog. We remember Christine McVie, dead at 79. And we offer some thoughts on why we believe in lies. Stay with us. Well, Paul, here we are at the end of another year. I'm just wondering if there's anything left on your mind. Uh, yeah, I think we should pride ourselves having survived it. Oh. But yeah. this is also the time of the year when a lot of people start making New Year's resolutions. Yep. You got one, or do you not do that evil practice? Uh, you say evil. Uh, I guess evil. I already know your um, bias on the subject. <laughs> well, you know what? I don't know. I have never met anyone who said, I made this New Year's resolution. It changed my life. <laughs> I accomplished it. Because people usually have some, uh, they've set a really high bar for their conduct in a resolution. So, yeah, you're right. Um, most New Year's resolutions have to do with becoming a better person, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's and not like... that crap? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I, I'm not going Aren't to... Aren't you all to be better people, don't you think? <laughs> well, yeah. I think some of us uh, will be forced to become better people because of circumstances that are beyond their control. Like uh, a heart attack? Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, you know, something yeah. something kind of earth-shaking that forces you to be better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess it's it's not a bad idea at the end of a year to kind of look back on what you did and what you accomplished. Um, but as for moving forward with a promise to change, uh, i just never been interested in that. Well, neither have I. I. I certainly can make a couple of promises. I, I promise. Well, I could help you with some ways to improve. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, I'll uh, make a list and send it to okay. you. Okay. Yeah, I'd talk to you in private about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I would, of course, uh, make a resolution to uh, to survive the year. That would be something mm. I could resolve. Yep, and get vaccinated for everything on the face of the earth yeah, uh, in maybe. preparation for the next pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Right. But other than that, no, I mean, you were right that people are really willing to give other people ideas for the resolution list. That seems to be yeah, a very really. popular you know, we, behavior. That'd be an interesting idea to do. You know, send emails to your friends and offer them New Year's Eve resolutions to become better people. Yeah. Yes, I can think of a few people that I would like to send those to. You are not included in that list, though, Paul. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll just scribble off the suggestions I had for you then. <laughs> okay, fine. <clears throat> it was a pretty long list, Jim. Mm. 
A class action lawsuit claims that microwavable Velveeta shells and cheese is a waste of time. This pod nugget is from NPR for November 28, 2022. A Florida woman named Amanda Ramirez has initiated a lawsuit against Kraft Heinz for misleading advertising for their microwavable shells and cheese. The company markets its product as being ready in three and a half minutes. But Ms. Ramirez claims that it's only the amount of time that the container is in the microwave. It doesn't account for the time needed to add water, stir, or let the cheese sauce thicken after cooking. The lawsuit seeks more than $5 million in damages and intends to cover consumers in 10 states. It is unclear what those damages are, except a waste of another minute or two. If this lawsuit seems frivolous, there may be a good reason. Part of the legal team is a lawyer named Spencer Sheehan, who specializes in ferreting out misleading claims in food advertising and packaging. Mr. Sheehan files similar lawsuits at the rate of about three a week. He oh, appara- my God. Yeah, he apparently counts on companies choosing to settle out of court as a cheaper alternative to a trial. It all seems like a cheap easy shell game to us. Huh? Is a simple word that asks for clarification on what was heard, or perhaps not heard. And it appears in nearly every language on earth. This pod nugget is from the Interesting Facts website. Anyone that's been married for a while understands the value of the word, huh? It is a confession that you weren't listening closely to your spouse, and you now need further information. There are multiple causes for mishearing. This includes daydreaming, lack of interest, or perhaps a buildup of earwax. In all cases, a simple, huh, will generate a retelling without admitting any guilt. And the curious thing is that an equivalent to, huh, appears in over 31 languages. It is shorthand for sorry, but I didn't understand what you just said. And amazingly, the sound of the different words is similar across all languages. Now, in what was just discussed, there is an implied question mark after the word, such as, huh? The same word with an exclamation point has a different purpose. Huh expresses amazement at what was just expressed. But that's a whole different pod nugget. Any comment, Paul? Huh, with an exclamation point. Now it's time for Stump the Older Old Dog, one of my favorite recurring acts of embarrassment, where (laughs) I get to challenge my partner, Jim, with his fairly expansive but shallow depth of knowledge. Hey, wait a second. Today's topic is jobs from the past that no longer exist. Are you ready, older old dog? Oh, I have one of those jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. we both did. All right, here we go. First question, what is a night soil man? Oh, night soil is another term for poop. Uh, so it's a person who collects uh, uh, thunder jugs and stuff like that and uh, takes them away. Well, you're close. The night soil men working under the cover of darkness emptied the privies with long-handled buckets. Thank you. Uh, very good. You got that one. Second one. What is a herb or herb strewer? Strewer? Strewer. <laughs> a herb strewer. A person who takes... Uh, a person who takes basil and stuff like that and, and throws it out the back window. <laughs> Why? Why would they throw it out the back window? I, I didn't invent the job. All right. Very good. And that's why it's obsolete. You are so wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we established a couple of centuries ago, uh, homes were unpleasantly fragrant. If you were wealthy enough, you would mm. employ an herb strewer whose job was to scatter about flowers and herbs 
herbs to control the smell. All right. Okay. okay. You got one, one lost one. What is an aircraft listener? A person, and I would associate this with England more than anything else, a person who was assigned a job like on the coast of England to listen for enemy aircraft going overhead. Uh, apparently, people with very good hearing were able to hear aircraft from a long way off. Well, you, we'll give you credit for that one. Uh, but before the invention of radar, incoming warplanes were detected acoustically by using large horns called war tubas attached to a stethoscope manned by aircraft listeners. Oh, they had help. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. We'll give you full credit for Thank that you. one. And uh, what is a knocker-upper, Jim? <laughs> that is a <laughs> you, You're thinking I'm going to say what I'm not going to say. A knocker-upper is a person who comes around and wakes you up in the morning at a hotel. Oh, well, again, close. I'm not sure we'll give you full credit for mm. that one. But in the old days, this was a form of alarm clock. Knocker-uppers mm -hmm. would rise early and tap on their clients' windows with a long stick to wake them up. Windows? Windows. Huh. Okay. <clears throat> you wouldn't uh, do it like in their head, you're thinking? No, so I was thinking in head. a hotel, it would just be somebody comes around to the door. But All right, forget hotel. There's no hotel involved here. These hotel. are just I'm saying private hotel. homes. Okay, People I got it. I got it. Okay, yeah, half credit. I'm going to take okay, half fortunately, credit. Fortunately, we're getting into our last one, which is, what is a link boy? <sighs> maybe it has something to do with golf. A uh, person who, uh, maybe it's an old term for caddy? Uh, a good guess, but so wrong. <laughs> Before the advent of street lamps, link boys were young lower-class boys who escorted pedestrians through the dark streets with torches. So I, I think we'll give you two out of five on this one, older old dog. I'm going to take two and a half, I insist. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can take what you want. Christine McVie, singer, songwriter, and keyboardist for Fleetwood Mac, is dead at the age of 79. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for November 30th, 2022. The band broke up and reformed in different combinations over the years, but their music in the 70s and the 80s was the soundtrack of our boomer formative years. Her singing, along with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, formed the unmistakable sound of Fleetwood Mac. The interpersonal relationships in the band were an ongoing soap opera that gave rise to some of their greatest hits. McVie was underappreciated for her role in Fleetwood Mac's success. On the band's greatest hits anthology, she either wrote or co-wrote half of the 16 tracks on the album. In addition, her vocal and keyboard contributions were an indispensable part of the band's many albums. Christine McVie leaves behind an impressive body of work as a composer and musician. She tended to dismiss her contribution by saying, I'm basically a love songwriter. I write about romantic despair a lot, but with a positive spin. In an election year, it's always a good idea to ask why people believe in misinformation and conspiracy theories. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for November 3rd, 2022. No one is immune to falsehoods. We use mental shortcuts to make many of our judgments. We tend to believe what we see and hear because most things we see and hear are true. 
At the same time, when something is repeated, the more likely we'll believe it. Often we use familiarity and ease of understanding to pass for the truth without verification. We're also more likely to accept falsehoods that fit into our worldview or social identity. As a result, we can fall into confirmation bias, which is the tendency to look for and favor information supporting what we already believe. Once we've accepted half-truths as true, it resists correction. Studies have shown that hearing correct information doesn't delete the falsehood. Instead, the truth and untruth coexist and compete to be remembered. It's even more challenging if the fabrication is embedded into our system of belief. That is our model of the world that helps us make sense of unfolding situations. Debunking misinformation once we've accepted it as true is difficult. What is needed is greater skepticism before we accept a lie as truth. This is especially important if we're involved with social media. That is the superhighway for half-truths, lies, and twisted conspiracy theories. Isn't that where you hang out, Jim? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I'd say that everything that we talk about is true, wouldn't you say? Well, that's our story, and we're sticking to <laughs> it. Roy Meinke participated in the nation's space program from its early days through the 1980s. As a contractor for NASA, he specialized in navigation, guidance, and control, knew Werner von Braun, and played a role in some of NASA's most celebrated moments. Retired now for over 30 years, Roy still has plenty on his plate. Okay, Roy, uh, tell me where you were uh, born and raised. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. I attended... Uh, all the public schools in Cleveland, uh, and I went to Wilbur Wright Junior High School and was privileged enough to have met Orville Wright. And so I was the, the youngster that set up the microphones for guest speakers, and so he and I, we managed to get into a bit of a conversation. After Miami of Ohio, uh, I went to Ohio State Graduate School. This was during the McCarthy era. And so a lot of the math staff quit because of the search for communists, et cetera. Yes, they were and, everywhere at that time, uh, weren't they? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So therefore, they gave me a job as instructor of mathematics, even though I was a first-year graduate student. During your youth, you had a love affair with aviation, right? Yes. Starting at about the age four, I took in the Cleveland Air Races. This was a national air race every year held basically on Labor Day. So that went on until the start of World War II. And then they were all canceled because things got more classified. So, yeah, I can remember 1934 with Jimmy Doolittle. I can recall Roscoe Turner with his pit tiger that he had with him. And uh, so these are all memories that I, I have collected, yeah. Right. So with your science education and your love of flight, it was natural you would go to the aerospace industry. Tell us about that, uh, how you ended up in aerospace. I was in uh, teaching uh, in Kingman, Arizona, and I got to see the ads in the paper and made a trip on over to Los Angeles to see what was going on over there. And uh, so eventually I left the teaching profession and got a job with North American Aviation. They had one of the only supersonic wind tunnels 
in the United States outside of the one in Virginia, which was a much larger one. So I, I got to do some early work in supersonics and uh, shockwave theory and things of that nature. But then you, you started getting involved with uh, rockets. When did that happen? I want to say offhand, I left uh, aerospace and went to teach in uh, Central State College in Edmond, Oklahoma. And while teaching there, I got to participate in some of the rockets being fired out of Fort Sill. And uh, they were basically small rockets, but uh, would reach pretty high altitudes. So anyway, I enjoyed, got my feelings for that a little bit and uh, continued on then by getting a job up in Boeing in Seattle and branched out from there. Went down from Seattle, transferred down to Huntsville, Alabama, and worked on a space program starting in Huntsville. Well, basically what I did, I replaced a homesick German. He had come over with von Braun into Texas, where they were stationed down in El Paso for many years, and he wanted to get back to territory that he knew. He was really homesick. So the whole group packed up and came to Huntsville, Alabama after they left El Paso because the terrain was much more similar. So anyway, we we took in a bunch of things there, and I got acquainted with uh, Von Braun as he would come around. That's Werner Von Braun. Pardon? Werner Von Braun is somebody who is well-known from our initial uh, missile rocket program. Correct. And uh, I was with him until he took his transfer from Huntsville, Alabama, up to uh, Washington, D.C., where he could get more extensive medical treatment than he needed at the end of his life. You were telling me at one time that a rocket got away from you? I I think offhand what you're referring to is the engine test stand. We originally had the engine test stand for checking out the Saturn V engines, and we had that pointing upstream along the river just to the south of uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. When the engine fired off, it blew out all the motel windows (laughs) because they were all along that particular section. So therefore we had to turn 180 degrees and send the exhaust stream downstream rather than upstream. Well, I know you ended up in Houston in 1962. Yes, Uh, when the work slacked off and layoffs were taking place. I could see the writings on the wall, and that's when I applied for a transfer down to Houston. And so I came down here to Houston and uh, went to work for Lockheed. So I left Boeing and took a job with Lockheed here in Houston. No, we should point out that you were working with NASA, but you were a contractor. That's correct. Your paycheck said Lockheed on it, or Boeing. Exactly. You're yeah. right. Yeah. But you were very much a part of the space program. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the guidance, navigation, and controls division. And my area basically was controls. So I I was involved in GNNC all the way, but controls was my main effort. So so if a rocket ended up on the wrong planet, it was your problem. Exactly. (laughs) Got it. Uh, 
were you involved with the Apollo program? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the main things that Marshall Space Flight Center at that time was getting ready for the Apollo program and our moon missions, yeah. And it was interesting because uh, this was one of the first times where we had uh, computers. This was even before we had the desktop type of computer. And we had paper tape that had holes in it. And that's uh, one of the first kind of recording machines that we had uh, to program our flights. Paper tape. That paper sounds, tape. It sounds kind of fragile. Yeah, it, in many ways it was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were also uh, there when there was a transition from the Apollo program to the space shuttle program. That's that, correct. That yeah. was a big transition. <clears throat> That's right. Was, was this it, a time when people were wondering what the future of NASA would be? That always is a concern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. When it's a when it's a federal budget, you're always concerned. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and also you were still at NASA when the unfortunate uh space shuttle challenger accident happened. That's correct. Um, we, that, we we lost some wonderful people on that. And of course we had doing all the pre flight and meeting with the crew and so we, we had a much more personal relationship with them, uh, and so when we lost them, it was a real shocker because we had worked so closely with them one-on-one for months on end, and now to, to see them all pass away in, in a rocket explosion. It, uh, right. And then you, you left. You retired in 1988. Correct. Yeah, and and right. looking yeah. looking back on those years, did you have any sense of the history that was being made? Well, somewhat, yeah. Many people at the time were well aware of it, but the memories faded quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, made kind of a career change once you retired. Uh, you entered a seminary. Tell me about that. When you're dealing with life, you know, it's tenuous as is. And now to put a person in jeopardy by putting them aboard a space ship and to get them back safe and sound, spirituality becomes much more significant. We lost a crew, and that raised the, the interest in spirituality and Christianity in my mind much more vividly than it had been. You are very ecumenical about your religion. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you attend services at several different faiths. That's right. Uh, let me say offhand, I'm most grateful to the people in the Jewish Community Center here where I met with them for seven or eight years, I think, on Fridays so we could discuss the Old Testament as far as the uh, the Catholic seminary, I continued on taking classes over at the seminary, as well as the Foundation of Contemporary Theology, and I was active in it for maybe 35 years. Your religious tradition could best be described as Jewish Catholic Congregational. 
Is that, <laughs> is that right? I, I would say that's true. That's yeah. covering covering all the bases, Roy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Roy, how do you account for your your long life? You you are in good shape. You take care of yourself. You live alone. Still drive. One of the things that uh, uh, I get to bed fairly early, uh, somewhere between nine and ten o'clock in the evening, and then I get up around five in the morning. And uh, after I get the show on the road, I go on over so that by six o'clock, the doors are unlocked in a hospital area. And so in Memorial Hospital area, there's a ramp that goes across Gessner. And I'll walk that ramp across Gessner maybe four times in the morning. There's a nice grade to it. And uh, so you, you can start by walking downhill, but you're going to have to pay the penalty when you uh, come back on up. But anyway, it's one of the things that gets the blood flowing in the morning. And I have one or two friends that show up, usually somewhere while I'm out there walking. So we get to greet one another in the morning and catch up with what's going on in the life of each. So, okay, so get plenty of sleep and find a place to walk uphill. Is that your formula? Well, that certainly got to be a good part of it. <laughs> like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.